Good morning, and it's good to be back with you as we continue our look through the book of Revelation. Uh, If you have been with us, you know that we started out with an introduction. Uh, We got through chapter 1, which uh, we answered the question, Who is Jesus Christ? And then last week, we looked more broadly at what it means to repent, which is Christ's command to five of these seven churches, as well as looking at the church at Ephesus last week that had lost or abandoned its love for Christ. Today, we are going to ask the question, are you ready? Are you ready? As we look at the churches at Smyrna and Pergamum. I'm going to start by reading uh, the passage today, beginning in Revelation 2, verse 8. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, The first and the last, who was dead and has come to life, says this, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich, and the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested, and you will have tribulation for ten days. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The one who has the sharp two-edged sword says this, I know where you dwell where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast my name and did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you, because you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of immorality." So you also have some who, in the same way, hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent, or else I am coming to you quickly, and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna. I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone which no one knows but he who receives it. Two of the greatest threats that the churches face then and that the church faces today are persecution and false teaching. And these are the two main threats that we see identified in the lives of these two churches at Smyrna and Pergamum. So what is Jesus' message to them? The message to the church at Smyrna is, Hold on a little longer. What you are suffering now will be worth it in the end. And the message to the church at Pergamum is to stop tolerating false teaching that leads to sin and compromise. Repent and return to me. For us today, the message is that we are promised that we're going to be persecuted by those who hate Christ. And our churches and our society will be infiltrated by those who hate truth, by false teachers. The question for us is, are you ready? Are you ready to face them? And how can we be ready? And that's what we'll be looking at today. Perpetua was ready. Has anyone ever heard of Perpetua? Perpetua lived in the third century in North Africa, what's present-day Tunis. She was a young mother living in Carthage. 
and she was a new Christian convert preparing for baptism with four other believers. Carthage at that time was under the Roman Empire, under Roman rule, and there was widespread persecution of Christians. She had an infant son, and she refused to sacrifice to the Roman emperor. All someone had to do was take a little pinch of incense, drop it into the altar, and say, Caesar is Lord. That was similar to what our churches were facing um, in Smyrna and Pergamum. That's all she had to say. Her father, who was a pagan, begged her to renounce Christ. Just simply say Caesar's Lord. And she refused. While she was in prison, and one of the things that's interesting, we still have perpetuous writings. So apparently she wrote extensively, and, and we have some of those. So this is an account that was from her writings. Father, do you see this vase here? Could it be called by any other name than what it is? And he says, no. She says, well, neither can I be called anything other than what I am, a Christian. So her father beat her and then left her in prison to her fate. So Perpetua and four others were taken to the Colosseum that you see pictured there. In that Colosseum that's pictured there, that's still in place in Carthage, I, I actually took that picture and stood in the middle of that arena. The stands that surrounded it, of course, are gone. Uh, it would have sat about 30,000 people in that day. Uh, she and those four others were taken into that Colosseum where leopards and wild boars and eventually gladiators murdered them and killed them for their faith in Christ. Perpetua was ready. Are we ready? Are we ready to endure the coming persecution and take a stand against false teachers? Jesus is going to tell us, and we're going to see persecution is a reality for his followers as are false teachers who are coming against us. Are we ready? So for some quick background, what was going on in these churches and in these cities where these churches were located? In Smyrna, uh, it actually, Smyrna comes from the word myrrh, the Greek word myrrh, where uh, that should sound familiar. Why, why should myrrh sound familiar? Anyone? Shout it out there. We don't raise our hands. It was one of the gifts that the Magi brought to the, the newborn Christ. There's, only, there's one other place where we see myrrh in the New Testament. Anyone remember? Yes, so myrrh was used for embalming. And it was brought, actually, I think it was Nicodemus, I know, I think in John it tells us that Nicodemus brought some myrrh uh, to embalm Jesus' body. Um, myrrh was a fragrant resin, and it's interesting that it had to first be crushed before it was useful. Hmm. Kind of interesting that that's uh, what's going on in Smyrna there. Smyrna was a very wealthy and religious city. There were multiple temples to multiple gods. It was known to be one of the most aesthetically beautiful cities of that time. Uh, I read that it had, there was like a, a thousand foot hill that surrounded the city, and it was on top of this hill that many of these temples and altars were built, very beautiful architecturally, and so that it had basically had a skyline, uh, which is, was not very common in that day, so it was a very beautiful city. How about Pergamum? Uh, Pergamum was actually the capital city of the Roman province of Asia. Uh, so it was a government city. Um, and like Smyrna, it was also very religious. It was known for its temples to Zeus and Athena and Asclepios. Does anyone know who Asclepios was? 
Um, well, I can't say that you're wrong because I, I'm not an expert in the matter, but I do know that he was the God of healing. So there could be some connotation there. If you've ever seen the medical symbol, which is a snake wrapped around a staff, uh, well, that was the symbol for Asclepios. And actually, the temple of Asclepios would be a place where if you were sick, you would go. It was full of snakes, so you would lie down on the ground and let the snakes crawl all over you, and that was going to bring you healing if, if you appeased Asclepios. I think I'd rather just be sick. Pergamon was also famous for a very large library. Um, and that could be in part because it was a place where they manufactured uh, parchment, which was used to write the books in those days. So let's see what Jesus has to say with, to these churches. First, to the church at Smyrna. So what did Christ commend this church for? And if you're curious, the answers are on the board. But what did he commend them for? Their affliction. Their poverty. Their poverty. And for, for being slandered, right? And again, Jesus writes this to the messenger or the leader or the angel of that church. We believe, or at least I believe, that the best way to take that is it's written to the, the messenger or leader of that church. And he identifies himself as the first and the last. The first and the last, the one who died and is now alive. The first and the last, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, is a picture of the eternal Christ. He has always been, he is, and he always will be, right? Jesus is God. He is equal with God. He was there when the world was created. Everything was created through him and by him. That's the picture there. It also, he was dead and is now alive. That, uh, that word for uh, he was now dead literally means he became a corpse. He took the initiative to become a corpse. It's a picture of Christ willingly giving up his life for us, right? He wasn't seized and taken to the cross. He went of his own volition. If he had not wanted to go to the cross, they would not have been able to take him to the cross. He went of his own accord. He defeated death, and he's now alive. These facts are going to have significant meaning to the church at Smyrna with what they're facing, uh, and the same will be true for us. Jesus says, just like he does for every other church, I know, right? I know, I see what's going on there. I know what you're going through. He tells that to this church, and he tells them that he knows that you're suffering. I know your affliction, your tribulation. Jesus knows because he sees all and he knows all. And he doesn't just know about their situation, he knows it right? Because Christ suffered the same things that they're going through. He was beaten. He was killed, murdered for his faith. If he tells us, right, there's nothing that we can go through that he has not himself been through. He knows their suffering. That word for suffering, we've talked about it the last couple of weeks, and the Greek is thalipsis. Um, it uh, is often translated tribulation, but again, it's that external pressure going on that causes us internal strife. It's literally being squeezed. One scholar defined it as pressure that burdens the spirit. So the physical and the societal persecution that they were facing was causing them great internal grief and despair. 
as you could imagine, right? It's not hard to imagine that what they were going through was causing them great internal strife. And this is tribulation is not because of any other reason but for their faith in Christ. That is why they are suffering. This isn't just the normal struggles and troubles of life. They are going through tribulation for the sake of Christ. So next we see that Jesus knows their poverty. He knows their poverty. This is interesting because uh, John, who wrote this letter, could have used another Greek word, but he used the Greek word for utterly destitute, literally a beggar. There could have been another word that he used just to say poor. He wanted to convey and to make sure that we understood exactly what was going on here. And it's a picture of uh, these believers who were likely well off at one point in time because Smyrna, again, was a very wealthy city. They had forsaken their riches to follow Christ. They had had their possessions taken from them because they followed and professed Christ. So again, this wasn't poverty of something that they did on their own behalf. This is a result of their faith in Christ. Uh, you know, this type of persecution, unfortunately, is very common in many parts of the world today. And if you ever, if you subscribe to Voice of the Martyrs magazine, you will read about these situations almost on a monthly basis. Uh, I read recently of a man in Pakistan. He was an engineer who was forced to make bricks for a living because he was not allowed to work in his field as a result of his profession of faith in Christ. I've read stories of doctors who were forced to work underground in the sewer system, not able to practice medicine in their country because of their profession of faith in Christ. They were robbed of their ability to make a living in their chosen field. Um, that is happening today. It's what was happening in Smyrna. They were very poor. But what does Jesus say? He says they're poor, but what? Shout it out when you know. I thought I heard it. They're rich. They're rich. What do you, they're poor, but they're rich. What do you think Jesus is telling them or reminding them? Treasures in heaven. That's it, exactly. He knows they're poor, but they're rich. They were poor by the world standards, but not by His. They were storing up for themselves treasure in heaven. Their suffering was earning them a greater reward. A greater reward. He says that I know you're slander and that these people are slandering you. It's likely a reference to someone bearing false witness against them. Uh, in other words, they were probably accusing them of breaking laws that they didn't really commit or twisting things to, to get them in trouble. Um, and it says that the people that were slandering them um, were Jews or supposed Jews, fake Jews. Um, these were supposed to be God's children, part of God's family. However, they were, in Christ's words, pretend Jews, likely physical descendants of Abraham, but far from practicing Judaism, and certainly far from Christ, because ultimately all true Jews will believe in Christ. Um, and we see in the text, actually, these Jews were agents not of God, but agents of Satan. They were doing Satan's bidding. So Jesus, this is only one of two churches that Jesus does not have a rebuke for. You know, he does not tell them they need to repent. But he does give them a command. It's interesting. What does Jesus tell them? Do not fear. 
do not fear. Do not fear. And what is interesting is, is that word in the Greek, what he's actually telling them is stop fearing. So while they don't need to repent, they need to stop fearing. It seems very natural for them to fear, right? I, I can put myself in their place and think that, yeah, you know, that that's, could be a very fearful situation. And Jesus is telling them, stop fearing. Do not fear. Do not fear what is coming. They were in persecution. It was getting worse. It was going to get worse. And they were afraid. But because Jesus is the one who is eternal the first and the last, who's in complete control. He is sovereign. He is allowing this to happen. He is allowing this in their lives. Because he was dead but rose and is alive, there is no need for them to fear. They can stop fearing. And these truths should be great comfort to them and anyone else who is facing persecution. So let's see what's going on in Pergamum. Not so gentle a word. Pergamon could be known as the compromising or the tolerant church. Jesus tells them that he knows. What does he know? He knows they were living in an immoral city. We talked about the religious feasts and festivals last week, but just as a quick reminder, again, these gods and these temples where this worship was going on uh, they would have involved sacrifices and, and sacrifices of meat to these idols, as well as sexual immorality. The beginnings of the cults that would end up worshiping Roman emperors, where emperor worship became the norm, were getting started, and that was and, and Pergamum was uh, central for a lot of that activity. Jesus described Pergamum as the city where Satan's throne is. The city where Satan's throne is. Now, some commentators take this to mean that Pergamum was, in essence, the capital city of evil and debauchery. And some other commentators don't necessarily think that, but they just think it's, it's an indication of the severity of the persecution that was taking place in that day. Um, still others believe that this was literally where Satan had his headquarters set up during that day and time, which is a reminder Satan is not omnipotent and he's not omnipresent he can't be in multiple places at one time he is real but he can't be everywhere so he has to be somewhere and they take this to mean that this is where he had set up operations in that day and place whatever we we can know that this is an evil place and this church was right in the middle of it they were right in the middle of it they were living in a dark and hostile place. You know, Jesus tells them he knows that they were standing up to persecution, and that's a good thing. And it's, you know, Pastor Brett uh, helped me teach a lot of this today and what he was talking about. They were standing up to persecution and not denying their faith. Christ says that they hold fast the faith and had not denied his name. So despite of their environment and the fierce persecution, they were remaining loyal to Christ. They would not forsake his name. They would not say that they were something other than a Christian. They wouldn't blaspheme him. They wouldn't deny him. And they were going to continue to try to live holy lives. At least one of them, and probably others, we know from the, the message that was martyred. Antipas. 
Antipas was martyred for his faith and profession in Christ. We don't know anything else about this man um, except what's written right here in, in this verse uh, from the Scriptures. You know, it's notable that Christ calls him a faithful witness. And that term may sound familiar because that's exactly how Christ referred to himself back in chapter 1, that he was or he is the faithful witness. You know, and I think about that and I go, wow, what an honor that Christ would, would refer to me in the same way that he refers to himself. Um, and going to your death for his name um, would be certainly one way where we could fulfill Christ's likeness. Um, it's the word martyr, which we know today, you know, to be killed for your faith, literally is a witness. Um, and it was only in the first century in New Testament times where that word began to take on the connotation of being killed for your faith. Um, it's really a Christian term when we think of it in that way. Now, some extra-biblical legend suggests that Antipas was the pastor of this church at Pergamum and that he was executed in a brass bull. And reading up on this a little bit, one of the things that was a common method of torture in that day is they had, would create this big you know, brass bull that was hollowed out in the middle. And essentially, a person would be put inside, the bull would be over a fire, and they would roast to death. And that's what the legend says, this is how Antipas was killed there in Pergamum. Not a good way to go. A horrible, drawn-out punishment and death. So even though these believers were facing this persecution without denying Christ, he's got something against them. And so what does Jesus rebuke? They were tolerating false teaching. They were tolerating false teaching. Specifically, it was the teaching or the doctrine of Balaam and the teaching or doctrine of the Nicolaitans. So let's try to figure out a little bit of what exactly would have been the teaching of Balaam and the Nicolaitans. Well, Balaam is an interesting character, and we, you can read a lot about Balaam in the book of Numbers, uh, verse, chapters 22 through 25, and a little bit in chapter 31. If you remember the story, Balak was the king of Moab, and the Israelites are going through the desert, um, wandering on their journey from Egypt to the Promised Land, um, and they're struggling against the Moabites, and so the king of Moab wants to curse Israel. So he goes to Balaam, who is a pagan prophet, he's not a prophet of God, and he wants to bribe or pay Balaam to curse Israel. And Balaam tells him, you know, hey, I can only tell you or do what God actually allows me to do, which was, you know, good on him, even though he's a pagan, he knows that he can't do anything apart from God. Um, so he tries unsuccessfully three times to put this curse on Israel, and, and God prevents it. So being unsuccessful, and before we go there, because if you have heard of Balaam, it's likely because of his donkey. Why might you have heard of Balaam's donkey? Karis wants to say. It was, the, it was the talking donkey. There have only been two instances of talking donkeys recorded in history. The other one was Shrek. That's a, no. So Balaam, he's on his donkey, and he's going, and the angel of the Lord appears, 
Balaam's donkey can see the angel of the Lord. It's likely the pre-incarnate Christ. We don't have time to go there. Um, but Balaam can't see the angel. And he's ready with his sword, and he's ready to strike Balaam down if he continues that way. And, of course, the donkey presses him up against the wall, and eventually he just drops and won't go any further. And, and Balaam's beating the donkey. And finally, the donkey turns around, why are you beating me? I'm trying to, you know, essentially, I've tried to save your life. And then eventually, you know, Balaam does know that the angel is there. It doesn't say, I wonder if he ever apologized to the donkey, but be that as it may, what Balaam ultimately did, he saw that he couldn't curse Israel. So then he went to Balak and he tried to trick. He's like, okay, if you can seduce the Israelites, if you can get them to participate in these Baal-worshiping feasts where they eat meat sacrificed to idols and where they engage in immorality, then God will discipline them. And you can kind of do an end around. And that's exactly what happened, um, is he was able to get, and then in Numbers 31, it tells us God struck down 24,000 Israelites um, as a result of that. And so ultimately, the doctrine or the teaching of Balaam, which Peter and Jude also write about in the New Testament, um, it, it is an invitation, it is an, an attempt to compromise sin in the church. And there were some in the church at Pergamum who believed that it was okay for them to go and participate in these feasts and these festivals where these pagan practices and where this debauchery was taking place and still be a part of the church. That can't happen. And that's what Christ's message to them is. Friendship with the world, James 4, 4 tells us, is enmity with God. If you were participating and volunteering um, in VBS this summer, you'll remember, you know, there are only two kingdoms. There's God's kingdom and Satan's kingdom. You can't live in both. You're either in one or the other. And the teaching of Balaam was, you can live in both. You can hop over here for a day, and then you can hop back over here for a day. Jesus is telling them, no. No, you cannot tolerate that kind of teaching in the church. But Balaam's error wasn't the only heresy that Christ mentioned. He also condemned the church at Pergamum for tolerating the sins of the Nicolaitans. Well, who were the Nicolaitans? What did they believe? And we don't know as much about them uh, as we do about Balaam. We do know, if you go back to his message at the churches at Ephesus, what did Jesus tell them that they, that, well, I just about spilled the beans anyway, so I'll say it. He hated their teaching. Jesus told the church at Ephesus that, you know, he, he commended them for hating the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. So we know that Jesus doesn't like it, but what was it? Well, some scholars believe that it was something very similar to the teaching or doctrine of Balaam, that it was an enticement to engage in immorality. Um, Nicholas may have been the Nicholas from Acts 6, who was one of the seven servants set aside uh, to minister to the widows and make sure that they ate so that the apostles could be devoted to teaching. Um, and the belief or the, the extra-biblical texts suggest that either Nicholas fell and began to follow this way, or that the people that were his disciples after his death then 
corrupted his teaching uh, and followed this way. Um, so we don't know with 100% certainty what exactly that was. Um, it could also be that it was a teaching that, that believed in a hierarchy of Christianity. The, the, the word or the name Nicholas actually means to conquer the people. So it could be that the Nicolaitans believed that you could achieve a higher degree of Christianity and so that the leaders could lord it over, well, I'm a better Christian than you are, when we know that that's not what the Scripture teaches, right? Uh, we are all equals at the cross. Um, there's no hierarchy in, in, in Christianity. Some churches, unfortunately, uh, and some cults uh, take that kind of teaching. So we don't know with 100% uh, certainty exactly what the teaching of the Nicolaitans was. We just know that it was condemned by Christ. And specifically what Christ was condemning wasn't just the people within those churches that were practicing those things. More specifically, Jesus rebuked who? He rebuked the church for tolerating it. This was false teaching and they were letting it go on. They weren't dealing with it. That is the rebuke. So now that we've seen what's going on in these two churches, let's go back to Smyrna and see what Jesus has to say. He's expressed his compassion and his understanding to them, and he's commanded them to trust him. I think we've heard that somewhere today, if you were listening in the first service, instead of fearing. Now he tells them it's going to get worse before it gets better. And he tells them that ultimately Satan is behind all of this. This is all Satan's work. Though men are going to be his instruments, it is Satan's bidding. Satan is tempting. Satan is testing them, and God is allowing it. God is allowing it. And we should see this as what they're going on in that persecution as a temptation of Satan for this church, for these believers, to forsake Christ and to to go another way, not to make a stand for Jesus. That's what Satan wants them to do. God allows these kinds of things in our lives to perfect our character. We see that in Romans 5, that when we endure persecution, it grows our character, which ultimately gives us hope. And that's the work that God is doing in their lives. He wants to grow their character and to grow their faith. So we see specifically that they're going to be thrown into prison and that they're going to suffer tribulation for 10 days. And it may shock you to know that there's lots of thoughts about what this 10 days means amongst biblical scholars. So some think that the 10 days is a reference to the 10 Roman emperors who served in succession and were great persecutors of the church. There are other scholars who say, well, the 10 days is actually a reference to 10 years. And still others say that the 10 days is merely a Greek expression for a short period of time. And, and finally, there are some who say that 10 days just really just means 10 days. And that's, that's where I fall. You know, it says 10 days. Why should we try to spiritualize it to mean anything other than 10 days? A 10-day prison sentence kind of seems odd to us today for someone to be thrown in prison for 10 days. But prison today is not the same as it was 2,000 years ago. Prison today is for rehabilitation, and it's to penalize. 
Uh, in the first century, typically, if somebody was being sent to prison, it was because they were being held there until they were going to be executed. And we kind of see that from the text, right? Jesus tells them, you will have tribulation uh, for 10 days and be faithful unto death. So what's most likely happening here is they were going to go to prison for 10 days and then they were going to be executed for their faith in Christ. So what does Jesus tell them? He tells them to be faithful unto death. Be faithful unto death. And we're going to see in a minute that that is not the end of the story. So what does he tell Pergamum? These people that were tolerating the false teaching. It is them that he tells to repent, like he does to the five of those seven churches. Anybody remember we talked about last week, repentance is a change of mind that leads to what? A change in behavior. Repentance is a change of mind that leads to a change in behavior. Repentance is not feeling sorry that you did something. It's not being upset that you got caught or feeling guilty about you did something. Biblical repentance is, I know in my mind that I've offended a holy God, and I'm going to turn to him, repent, and change my behavior. Change of mind that leads to a change in behavior. So, Unlike Smyrna, they needed to repent, or he was going to return and judge them. Return and judge them. He tells them he's coming to war against them with the sword of his mouth. That takes us back to the description of himself in verse 12, that he says, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword, the sword of his mouth, the word of God. Hebrews 4.12 talks about this two-edged sword. It divides soul and spirit, bone and marrow. The sword, the word of God, divides believers from non-believers. It divides righteousness from sinfulness, truth from error. The word of God is the authority by which all men will be judged, period. And that is what Jesus is talking about here. It is his word that will judge him, the truth of his word, not the false teaching that they were tolerating. He is coming is most likely a reference to his second coming and the judgment that will come when Christ returns. Some think of it, again, not a shock that there's not agreement here, that this is a, a different coming, that he is going to come specifically to Pergamum, um, but I don't necessarily take that view. Uh, regardless, he knows, and he is going to judge them. He said he's coming quickly. Again, that's not necessarily quickly in time, but when he comes, it will happen rapidly, if that makes sense. There is time for them to change. There's the grace and the patience of God. There is time for them to repent. There's time for them to conquer and overcome. What a gracious God that we serve, that he is patient with us. He is patient with this church and allowing that. So, back to Smyrna. And let's see what's going to happen. Jesus' promise to the overcomers, or depending upon your translation, to the conquerors at Smyrna. His promise to them is if they will hold on, just hold on a little longer. They will continue to hold fast. They will receive the crown of life. Anybody remember? There's a, a passage that that refers to. Anybody know that one? James 1.12 reads almost exactly the same. Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial, for when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. 
The crown here is kind of the one that's pictured. It's not like a diadem, which would have been the Greek word for the crown of a king or a queen. Um, It's Stephanos, which is a victor's crown, a a laurel wreath that the winner of of, Olympic-type games would have received. Uh, That is what's promised, a victor's crown. A victor's crown, that is what's promised to those who overcome. They would win the victory of eternal life. The Greek rendering of that phrase is literally the crown which is life. The crown which is life. Eternal life is the victory of the saints who overcome. Satan wanted victory by putting them to death. What he actually did was he gave them their victory in Christ. He gives them over to eternal life there. What he wanted for wicked, for bad, God intended for good. Next we see Christ's promise to Pergamum. This one's kind of interesting. Christ's promise to those in Pergamum, to those who overcome, is to give them some of the hidden manna, a white stone, and with a new name written on the stone that's known only to uh, the one that receives it. And again, it will be shocking for you to know that ideas abound about what Jesus is talking about here. Well, let's talk through some of it. Where do we see manna? in the scriptures. Shout it out. In Exodus? What's, what's, where do we have, what's, what's manna and what's going on in Exodus? Don't be afraid. Yeah, so they're on their exodus, right, from Egypt to Israel, and the Lord gave them manna to eat every day, right? That was their bread. Where else do we see reference to manna? Thinking of one prominent one specifically. Maybe. <laughs> Possibly. That was not what I was thinking of. The, the, what was in the Ark of the Covenant? The, the Ten Commandments, right? The two stone tablets and a jar of manna were all, was also in the Ark of the Covenant. That was another place where we saw manna. So, ultimately, I think the best way to look at this, it is a reminder of God's provision and his faithfulness, his daily bread. He is the bread of life. You know, his word is our spiritual food. Um, that is, you know, and there, there could be more there. If there is, I, I don't know how to communicate it to you. How about the white stone? This is likely a reference to a stone that would have worked like a ticket or a passport of some sort. And that day, um, especially if you were the victor in some type of athletic event, uh, you would be given a white stone that would grant you admission into all these festivals and feasts. Um, it, was, it was a social ticket, so to speak, that would give you access. And Jesus is telling those who overcome, he is going to give them 
a ticket to the true marriage supper, to the wedding feast with the Lamb. Um, that is what those who overcome achieve. This white, the, the white could be a reference to purity. Um, there's also some that think that the white stone, there was, in that day, the judges would, would render their verdict. Uh, a white stone would be an acquittal versus a black stone, which would indicate guilt. Um, so there could be some reference there. But again, I, I think of it as a picture of our invitation uh, to that marriage supper uh, that the believers will attend one day. And then, again, the new name. Um, the new name could be um, a reference to the name of Christ. Uh, later on in Revelation, Revelation 14, we will see that the believers of that time will have Christ's name written on their foreheads. Um, it's probably more likely that this is a name that we are given um, by Christ, um, that only a, you know, a, a new name. I think, and, and symbolically, I think it can be symbolic of the new nature. You know, we're told in 2 Corinthians that those who are in Christ are a new creature, a new creation, um, and that this new name is symbolic of that new nature, that new creation uh, that one becomes when they're born again. That is what is promised to these overcomers. All right, got to move. Man, are you ready? Are you ready? I'm going to blow through this kind of quickly because I want to leave time for some table discussion. As I've already said, almost every New Testament writer warns of persecution and false teaching. How do we get ready to face what's coming? We need to know, expect, trust, and respond. We need to know our enemy. Christ informed both of these churches multiple times who their real enemy was. Who was it? Satan. It wasn't the people who were slandering them. It wasn't the people who were throwing them in prison. Satan was behind it all. He is the enemy. This will be especially important as we think about how we respond. We need to expect it. We should not be surprised when we're persecuted, especially not after today. We will be persecuted. Matthew 5, 10, 11, Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Jesus says when you are persecuted, not if you are persecuted. We will be persecuted. In 2 Timothy 3.12, Paul writes, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. He didn't say some might be. He said all will be. All will be persecuted. When we talk to others about Christ, when we attempt to live holy lives in unholy places, when we stand up for biblical truth, we should expect to be persecuted. We should expect it. Don't be surprised. Things are not going to get better. We should expect persecution. We should also not be surprised when false teachers attempt to infiltrate our churches. We should expect to encounter false teaching in the church. Sadly, the attacks on the church uh, are greatest in the seminaries where liberal professors come in and distort the truth of God, training up pastors to go out and destroy the... Dis yeah, thank you. <laughs> distort the Word of God. 
we should not be surprised. They, the, the Bible tells us it's coming. In fact, this is the greatest danger to the 21st century church. It is false teaching, false gospels. What does the Bible tell us? Again, in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7, Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. In 2 Peter 2, False prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies. And in Jude 4, certain persons crept in unnoticed. Those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Ravenous wolves, ungodly, destructive, that's false teaching. We need to expect false teaching. We need to trust. We need to trust God. When we face persecution and false teaching, the first initial response could be fear. It could be discouragement. We don't need to fear. We don't need to be discouraged. We need to trust God. How do we trust God? We must know Him. To trust God, you have to know God. You have to know His Word. How are you going to refute a false teacher if you don't know what's true and what's false? We need to be students of the Word. You know, we need to be like the Acts 17 Bereans. You know, when they heard the Word of God preached, they didn't just assume that it was true. They went back to their scriptures and they checked it out to see that it was true. Don't assume that the things that I'm telling you today are true. Go back to Revelation 2, read and study and know if it's true or not. Don't just assume that what Pastor Brett preached about in Isaiah 36 today is true. You need to be a student of the Word. That is how we respond to false teaching. We need to know and trust Christ. We need to trust His promises, right? This church in Smyrna was promised the crown of eternal life if they would just hang on. They need, we need to believe that. We need to believe that there is a greater purpose for our suffering when we're suffering for Christ. We need to believe in a greater purpose. We need to trust God. Finally, we need to respond. How do we respond? Do we fight back? No. Going back to the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, Jesus tells them we need to turn the other cheek. Do not resist an evil person. Go the extra mile. You know, a Roman soldier had the right to tell a Jewish citizen to carry their pack for a mile. That was the law. Jesus is telling them, don't just carry it that one mile, carry it another mile too. Matthew 5, 43-48, Jesus tells us to pray for our enemies, to pray for those who persecute us. In Luke 6, he tells us to love our enemies. Romans 12 and verses 14 and 19 through 21, bless those who persecute you. Don't curse them. Do not repay evil for evil. What about false teaching? How do we respond to false teachers? We need to call sin, sin. We need to practice church discipline. Matthew 18 lays that out for us in one way. When we hear or we see sin, we need to go to someone and tell them, you know, that is sin. And if they won't listen, then we take one or two other people with us and we, we try to convince them. Again, the goal is not to kick them out. The goal is to get them to repent. Restoration is the goal. We want to, to teach truth. Titus 3.10 says that, you know, we, ultimately we reject them. 
And the, because the reason false teaching is so dangerous is because it will divide the church. It was dividing the church in Pergamum. Those who lead others astray have to be dealt with. You know, there is room for disagreement on certain things. We can disagree about what those 10 days mean. We can't disagree that Jesus is the first and the last. We can disagree about what the hidden manna means, but we can't disagree that Christ was born of a virgin and lived on this earth and died on the cross for us. You know, we can disagree about whether we're going to get a new name or whether that's Jesus' name that's written on this for us. But we don't disagree that he rose from the dead and he is alive and living now and that he is coming again. Those are the things that we can't disagree about. We need to know, expect, trust, and respond. So in the few minutes that we have left, your table discussion questions are there for you on the screen. We have been promised and instructed that we are going to face persecution and that we are going to face false teaching. Are we ready? Let's talk about that at our tables.